Welcome back to the listener's commentary on 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, down through chapter 5, verse 13. And this section begins really the second main topic of the letter. If you look at the overview chart of the letter that we provided in the study hub, uh, I broke the letter into a handful of main sections. This is the beginning of that second main section. So in chapters 1 through 4, really down through 4.16, that was the first main section that dealt with divisions and wisdom and the cross. Here in 4.17, we shift to topic number two, and the main focus of this section, topic number two, is sexuality and marriage. This topic begins here and goes all the way through chapter seven, and it discusses several problems and several questions all revolving around sexuality and marriage. So the first one that we'll see in this recording is there's a guy in the church who's sleeping with what is probably his stepmom. And so we'll deal with that here. So Paul's got to address that. Then there are some Christians who are still going to prostitutes. Paul deals with that in the second half of chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, he answers some questions from a letter they wrote about uh, sexuality in marriage, questions about marriage to unbelievers, questions about betrothal and marriage in general. And so sexuality and marriage seems to be the big theme. Now, there is one part that doesn't seem to fit that. And that is the first part of chapter six, which is about lawsuits. And so we'll have to wrestle with what's going on there and why it's placed here where it is. But the majority of this section from 417 down through chapter seven all revolves around sexuality and marriage. And the first little bit, chapter four, 17 through 21, is transitional, moving out of the first uh, big essay, the first big topic of 1 Corinthians, and moving into the second. And so chapter 4, verse 17, picks up like this. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in the church. And so as we are transitioning out of the first subject and into the second subject, Paul begins by stating that's why I sent Timothy to you, to remind him of my ways, right? He had just said in verse 16, imitate me, imitate me in my way of life. Well, I'm, I've sent Timothy to you for this purpose to help you do that. Um, he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ. And they're the same thing I teach everywhere in every church. And so I've sent him to you to help him help you see and remember and embody my ways that I'm teaching everywhere. Then he goes on in verse 18 and says, Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. They seem to think that Paul's never going to come. He's left. He hasn't come back. Uh, and they apparently think they can do whatever they want since Paul isn't there. It doesn't really matter anyhow. It actually becomes clear, specifically, one of the things Paul has in mind uh, at the beginning of chapter 5. He says here, you have become arrogant as though I weren't coming to you. At the beginning of chapter 5, he talks about this issue of uh, this guy sleeping with his stepmom and says, you've become ar arrogant about this instead of mourning. And so this is one of the, the things that he has in mind is that they're arrogant and boasting, presumably about their freedom or something like that as it pertains to sexuality. And this guy who's sleeping with his stepmom 
And arrogance like this is just completely contrary to Paul's ways. It's completely contrary to the wisdom of the cross that he just finished explaining. And, and so even though he's not there, I'm sending Timothy to you and he's going to remind you of my ways. And then he says in verse 19, and I will come soon if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Let's just reflect on that last little bit because I think it's important in the whole context of 1 Corinthians. He says, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Words there is literally, uh, it's the word logos, the word for words, but it can mean uh, words, it can mean speech, it can mean talk. And keep in mind that it seems like there are at least some people in the Corinthian church who are pretty high on themselves and how spiritual they are. They think they're spiritual when they really aren't. That's why Paul had to tell them in the last section uh, that they're, they're fleshly and they're babies instead of being mature. And one of the ways they're kind of high on themselves shows up is in the, the way they talk and the things they talk about. In fact, if you read back through chapters 1 through 4 in that first section and look for all the things Paul says about talk, speech, words, and stuff like that, Paul just says a lot about it because that's apparently a huge part of this problem is the way they're talking and the things they're talking about and how they're using their words. And so Paul was thankful when you look at his Thanksgiving in chapter 1. He was thankful that God had enriched them in talking and knowledge. It's just that they're misusing those gifts of God by using them according to the same values and same ways that the kingdom of man uses them rather than the kingdom of God. And so they're using their words to argue over who was greater, over which leader was greater, and all of that. And Paul's going to have to deal with some of the misuse of their speech gifts later on in chapters 12 through 14. They just need to come to terms with the word of the cross and that the word of the cross is a word about self-emptying and self-lowering, not being arrogant. And so Paul's like, I'm going to come to you and I don't really care about the highfalutin speech of those who are arrogant and puffed up. What I really care about is their power. I'm going to find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. And the reason for that is because Paul isn't interested in all their talk about how spiritual they are, but their power. And when we look at what Paul says about power in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I suspect what Paul means by power is Christ-like power that shows up in the ability to endure lowliness and persecution, that shows up in faithful living even when it's hard, that shows up in self-lowering and self-sacrificial love. Once again, just look through the, the last section, chapters 1 through 4, and Paul even said some things there about power. And then look through the rest of 1 Corinthians and see what he says about power. Look on into 2 Corinthians, see what he says about power. And that's what Paul means by power. Power in the kingdom of God is this ability to endure hardship and to lower ourselves, to be faithful to Jesus, even in the difficulties of life, and to offer ourselves in self-giving, self-sacrificial love. And what Paul cares about is that kind of power. So he says, I will come soon enough if the Lord wills. And when I do, I'm going to find out not all the spiritual talk from these people. What I want to really find out about is their power, their power to live the way Jesus models to live. Why? Well, look at verse 20. Because the kingdom of God is not, doesn't consist in words, but in power. Talk is cheap. 
but the power to live and love faithfully for Jesus, that's what really matters. That's what the kingdom of God consists of. The kingdom of God, that phrase refers to the realm where God reigns as king, where what God wants done is done because God's in charge. So talk about spirituality and greatness. That really doesn't matter. What matters in the kingdom of God is the power of Christ and the cross and the gospel. And the gospel is about self-giving and self-lowering. So when Paul comes, he's going to look at people and how they're living out the power of the gospel. That's what really matters. And so he says in verse 21, what do you desire? That I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The rod refers to the rod of correction. When I come, do you want me to have to come and bring a rod of correction Or can I come with just love and gentleness to you? And so he goes on then to appeal to them to begin to deal with these things now uh, and specifically deal with this problem of this man in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom. And so he says in chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Specifically, that someone has his father's wife. And so here's his shock. You guys are all in all this talk about how spiritual you are and you're vying for all this status and you're just saying, oh, look how spiritual we are. And then then you have this guy in the church and you're not dealing with it and you're not addressing it. In fact, he says in verse two, you've become arrogant and you haven't mourned about it. Um, And the problem is, that someone has his father's wife. And Paul says, that's sexual immorality. And it's sexual immorality that's even looked down on by the pagan culture around you. I mean, it's not even viewed as a good thing by them. Um, Since he says his father's wife and not his mom, it's probably his stepmom. Chances are his dad had remarried another woman who is not his mom. And now this guy is sleeping with his stepmom. We don't know whether his dad is dead or still alive. I mean, it doesn't give us any details. All we know is someone has his father's wife. And the Roman world had a rather lax approach to sex and immorality. Sex was viewed by and large in the Greco-Roman world as a basic human need like eating or drinking. And so it was just assumed that men would get it where they needed to get it. But um, even this, like having sleeping with your father's wife, your stepmom, even that was beyond view what was acceptable in that society. And so Paul is just shocked and aghast at that. And he says in verse two, and you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this would be removed from your midst. Let's just clarify a couple things here. When he says the one who has done this deed, we could easily read that as if it were a one-time thing. He did this one time. But the word translated as deed often refers to a practice or a situation or a way of acting as a whole. And that's the idea in this situation. This guy, notice, has his father's wife. That has his present tense, which refers to ongoing action in the Greek language. And so he has his stepmom in an ongoing relationship for his own sexual pleasure. And the church is all puffed up when they should have mourned. Um, They should have mourned for themselves. 
They should have mourned for what this means for their church community. They should have mourned for the man and his sinfulness. They should have mourned for stepmom. Um, they should have mourned the whole situation because it's shameful and it should produce mourning over the sin. And the ultimate result would be that this man would be removed from the church community. Like if he refuses to change his ways, he should be removed from your midst, Paul says. And that idea is key in everything that follows. So in the rest of uh, chapters 5, 3 through 13, that's the key idea that this man should be removed from their midst. In fact, he bookends the section with it. So he says it here um, that... The one who's done this deed should be removed from your midst. And then in verse 13, he says it again, remove this person from your midst. So that's the key idea in Paul's instructions in what follows. And it becomes clear that Paul's primarily focused on the community of faith. His focus is on their purity and their holiness and allowing this man to continue in the church community and continually act this way is actually polluting the entire congregation. So he wants them to deal with this and deal with it decisively. In fact, verses 3 through 5 describes how Paul responds to the situation and how he expects the Corinthians to respond to the situation. They may be puffed up and arrogant and haven't mourned the situation and haven't dealt with it, but not Paul. Paul is decisive and he's going to tell them how he deals with it and how he expects them to deal with it. Now, verses 3 through 5 is one long sentence in Greek, and that means sorting it out in English is a little bit tricky and challenging. So let me just clarify a few things to set it up. Then I want to read through verses 3 through 5 in total, and then we'll go back and make some comments through it. The main verb in verses 3 through 5 is, I have already judged, or I have already decided. And the second half of the main clause begins in verse 5 when he says, to hand such a person over. So that's, that's the main idea. All the other stuff is ex somehow connected to that, but that's the main statement. I have already decided to hand such a person over. This language is a way of describing removing the man from their midst. He just said in verse 2, you should have removed this person from your midst. He's going to end the section in verse 13 with saying, remove the person from your midst. And so Paul saying, I've already decided to hand such a person over is a way of describing that action of removing this man from their midst. So the main idea is that Paul has already made the judgment or already decided to hand a person over. Uh, and thus remove him from the church. And he wants the Corinthians to join him in this assessment and this verdict and to carry out the proper response for this person. So let me read verses three through five in my translation here, which is the New American Standard. It says this, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already ju judged him. That's our main verb. Have already judged or already decided I have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to turn such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. 
Now, remember, as I said, this is one long sentence in Greek. This translation has turned it into two sentences. They've added uh, the phrase, I have decided to start verse five to recapture the main verb, which the first time they translate it, they translate it, I've already judged, but it's a, they're trying to capture that idea. So that's the main verb. I have already judged him to hand such a person over, to turn such a person over. Now, let's walk back through that and just clarify a few of the specific phrases. Paul says in verse 3, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit. Obviously, Paul's not with him. That's why he's writing a letter. Uh, so he's absent in body. But what does he mean by present in spirit? Well, it could mean he is sort of like with them in spirit, as we might say in English, right? Like, I'm not there physically with you, but I'm, I'm there with you in spirit. But in view of Paul's strong theology of the Holy Spirit, and in view of what he says in verse 4 about them being gathered together in the name of Jesus, and Paul with them in the spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus, I suspect he means more like he's with them by means of the Holy Spirit. Since they have the Holy Spirit, Paul has the Holy Spirit. Since Paul speaks with the authority of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, I think that's what he means here when he says, I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in or by the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit is in Paul. He's speaking through Paul as an apostle. The Spirit is in the Corinthians. And they should all be on the same page on this. That seems to be the idea. And so Paul... Um, by the Spirit, has already decided or already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. So even though I'm not there, um, I have the Spirit, you have the Spirit, and I've already judged him. I've already decided, is the idea, what to do with this person who has committed this deed. He continues in verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and the idea of that clause is that when you assemble, you do so in the name of Jesus, as his body, that is, as his representatives and under his authority. And so your assembling together is in the name of Jesus. You don't assemble and act on your own. You're not just your own little uh, club that you get to decide the rules and the standards. Jesus decides all that, and you operate under him in his name when you gather together as his people. And so, when you gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and Paul says, I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Again, in spirit there probably is the Holy Spirit again. And I with you in the spirit, or by the spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus. So when you all gather together as the church and you do so in the name of Jesus and I am there with you by means of the Holy Spirit and you're going to read what I have written here to the church, which comes from the Spirit, right? And you're there with the power of Jesus. Then, verse 5, I have decided, restating the main verb from verse 3, I have decided or I have judged to turn such a person over to Satan. This is a description of a formal verdict. When, as one commentator says, the assembly of the Lord's people meet together with Paul there by virtue of the Spirit, and they gather in the name of the Lord and his power, Paul expects them to render the same verdict that he has already decided on, that he has already rendered. 
And when he says to hand such a person over to Satan, that's that language isn't clear. Let's just be honest about that. But Paul probably means uh, sending him out of the church back into Satan's realm. Again, it's not perfectly clear, and we don't want to be too strong on this. We have to have a little bit of humility here. Uh, but this seems to be a way Paul formally describes removing this person from the church. Remember, that's the main idea. He said that in verse 2. He'll say that in verse 13 about removing this person. And so handing the person over to Satan seems to be how Paul formally describes removing him from the church. He's being sent back into the realm where uh, a different Lord is operative since he won't obey the Lord Jesus. Now, what's the goal of all of this? Well, there's actually two goals. There's a goal for the individual and there's a goal for the whole church. Paul first states the goal for the individual. And so he says, I have decided to hand such a person over to Satan. And then he states the goal for the individual for the destruction of his body so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Um, once again, <laughs> The language isn't super clear. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? The idea seems to be that this person would in some way be motivated to repent and thus be saved. But the way Paul says it just leaves raises some questions. So the word that they translate here is body for the destruction of his body literally is just the flesh. In fact, there's no his in this for the destruction of the flesh. Well, does that refer to the body? Well, if so, the idea would seemed to be like this person would get sick or die and yet somehow be saved. But what would that even mean? Like, that's not clear at all. Or does the word refer to the flesh as Paul uses it, say, in Romans chapter 8 or Galatians 5? Again, it's just the flesh. Um, and so the flesh in Romans 8 and in Galatians 5 refers to the fallen human mode of living. And so is that what Paul means here for the destruction of the flesh? Like he's living according to the flesh by indulging in this sin of sleeping with his stepmom. I am handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his fleshly way of doing life. But if that's the case, well, then what does Paul mean by so that the spirit may be saved? And again, there's no his. This translation adds the word his so that his spirit may be saved. But literally, it's just so that the spirit may be saved. Well, what does that mean? Paul never talks about a person's spirit being saved. He always talks about a whole person being saved. And so what, is, what does that mean so that the spirit may be saved? So again, it's just not totally clear, and it would be nice to be able to ask Paul. We just don't have that option right now. So I think a little humility is in order to say, man, I'm just not totally sure on some of the way Paul has worded this, but we do kind of get the main point. What Paul hopes is that by handing this person over to Satan, meaning remove him from the church, that somehow um, this would lead to his repentance. Interestingly enough, Paul does use similar language to this in a passage in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. There Paul writes, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. What I think is important to notice is that in both places, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and here in 1 Corinthians, in both places, the desired outcome is redemptive. In 1 Timothy, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And here, that this person may be saved. 
And so this handing a person over to Satan, rendering this formal verdict, removing them from the church, the goal of it is redemptive, that they would repent and that they would somehow be saved. And so what we can say for certain, even though there is some difficult language here in verses 3 through 5, what we can say for certain is Paul refers to removing this person from the church, as we noted in verses 2 and 13, removing the evil person from among them, right? That's what he's getting at. Paul hopes that somehow this will lead this person to repent and be saved. So that's the first goal with regard to the individual. But the Corinthians aren't doing this. They're ignoring it or they're tolerating it and they're still boasting about their spirituality. Maybe this person who's doing this has high status and so they're ignoring it for that reason. Maybe they're even holding this man in high regard because of his high social status. Who knows? But Paul says in verse 6, your boasting isn't good. You're arrogant. You're not mourning. You should have dealt with this. Remove the man from your midst. Instead, you're arrogant. And that's not good. Your boasting isn't good. And so here you are. You think you're so spiritual and you're not even dealing with this serious problem in the church. Then what Paul does is he goes on to explain the second goal. So the first goal was the individual. Let's remove him from the church in hopes that he will repent and be saved. And the second goal has to do with the church as a whole. Um, and he, Paul uses a word picture for it. The word picture he uses is that of leaven to describe the influence such a person's sin has on the whole church and how they ought to respond as the people of God. So goal number one was for the individual. Hopefully he'll repent and be saved. Goal number two is the well-being of the whole church. And here's how Paul pictures that. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Leaven, not really yeast. We think in terms of using yeast to help a, a lump of dough rise. Leaven was more like sourdough starter. It was a piece of fermenting dough that was used that you would you know, knead into a new batch of dough so that then that dough would be leavened and rise. Leaven is often used as a metaphor in the Bible for sin and uncleanness. Not the only way, sometimes just for influence, but often for a metaphor of sin and uncleanness. And in what follows, Paul is going to connect this image of leaven, leavening a whole lump of dough with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those two went together as a key Jewish festival. And part of celebrating it, Feast of Unleavened Bread, notice, required cleaning the house of all the leaven. The instructions for it are found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 15, and it says this, For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything with leaven from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Notice the idea of being cut off from Israel actually connects with removing the person from the community of faith. And so in view of that instruction, Paul writes this, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. So in view of these instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, leaven frequently became a symbol of harmful or unclean or sinful influences, right? Jesus saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Not always used that way. Sometimes it's just used for influence, like the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. But often it is. It's used as a negative influence, particularly sinful influence. And that's the case here in context. And so he's set up this word picture, a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole lump of dough. And now he says in verse seven, clean out the old leaven. 
Get rid of it, just like you would have to do at Passover time. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened. This actually makes perfect cultural sense. After keeping fermenting dough, that is leaven, around for a number of months, there comes a point where you need to get rid of it and start over, right? And since Passover was connected to the spring grain harvest, it was a perfect time to clean out the old fermenting dough and to start a fresh batch of leaven. So echoing that instruction, Paul then calls the Corinthians to do that. Clean out the old leaven. Start fresh in keeping with their identity as God's unleavened people. That is, God's clean and pure people. That's who they're supposed to be. And the fact that they're leaving this person among them is like leaving some bad leaven that's negatively adversely affecting them as God's pure, clean people. And then Paul carries on the imagery further in what follows, making clear what he has in mind. He says, For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So here Jesus is being pictured as like the Passover lamb that was offered. And this was such a powerful image because Jesus died during Passover. Um, John the Baptist referred to him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so since Jesus was crucified during Passover, since the Lord's Supper was a re-envisioning of the Passover celebration around Jesus, it made perfect sense to describe Jesus as the Passover Lamb. And that's what's being said here for Christ. Our Passover has already been sacrificed. Therefore, verse 8, let's celebrate the feast, let's celebrate the, the festival, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so Paul is simply developing this imagery here of unleavened bread, connecting it to Passover, connecting it to Jesus as the Passover lamb. And since Passover had to be celebrated the right way, so too God's people in Christ, they must live out the new Passover according to who they are as God's holy people. And what that means is they've got to get rid of the old leaven of malice and wickedness. They've got to be like an unleavened lump of dough practicing sincerity and the truth. And remember that the whole context of this is this church member who's sleeping with his stepmom. So Paul now goes on to clarify something that he wrote to them in a previous letter that apparently they had misunderstood and, and were using it wrongly uh, rather than dealing with this situation in the church. So Paul says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So Paul had written them a previous letter. So we call this letter we're looking at 1 Corinthians, but it's really the second letter he wrote to them. Uh, he had written a previous letter, and in that letter he said to them, don't associate with sexually immoral people. They took that like, oh, we got to stay away from sexually immoral people. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. I didn't at all mean with the sexually immoral people of this world. I didn't mean the sexually immoral people there that aren't believers, that aren't followers of Jesus in Corinth, um, or with the greedy, or with swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to leave the world. In other words, I didn't mean the immoral people of this world, that is, who are living according to this world's ways and practices and behaviors. And notice the list of things he mentioned, sexual immorality, 
greedy, swindlers, idolaters. Those aren't random. Those are actually issues he will deal with later in the, the letter. So he, he didn't just randomly come up with those. They're problems influencing the Corinthian church. He mentions them here because they foreshadow where he's going in the letter. So he says, I didn't mean for you to deal with the immoral people in this world. Well, what did he mean? Well, verse 11, actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person or a greedy person or an idolater or is verbally abusive or is habitually drunk or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. It's not the people of the world who act like this should be avoided, but people who call themselves Christians and practice these things. That's what Paul meant in his previous letters. As as the kingdom of God or the family of God, God's people have a different culture, a different set of values and practices and behaviors. So when people come into God's family, they need to learn a new way of doing life. I like to refer to it as re-socializing. In fact, on my other podcast, The Bible and Life, I did a whole series on re-socializing, learning a new set of family practices and family values. But the Corinthians here, they're indulging this person rather than leading him into Jesus' way of living. Paul wants them to know that that's nothing to be proud of. Rather, they should actually use their social norms, their social standards to call this person and any others to repentance. And if they refuse to repent, then they need to experience the ultimate social pressure in their culture of disassociation. And in their honor and shame culture, man, that would create real social pressure to change their way of life. And when he says, don't even eat with them, I mean, that was real social pressure to motivate change. Like eating together was something that was powerfully symbolic and powerfully meaningful in their culture. That meant that we belong together and we were unified together. And so to not even eat with somebody would create real social pressure to change. And again, the point is to treat them as one who's outside the community of faith. This doesn't mean to be mean to them. We love all people as God's people. But it does entail a reduction of interaction specifically for the sake of motivating change. In fact, one commentator points out when he says, don't even eat with them, it may focus most explicitly on the communion meal because we know the Corinthians were eating a meal and celebrating communion together. Don't invite them into that. Don't let them be a part of that. And the whole goal is not to be mean. The whole goal is hopefully that somehow they will repent and thus be saved. So Paul had written in a previous letter about this. They had somehow taken this wrong as disassociating from people of Corinth, not people in the church. And so Paul says in verse 12, For what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? In other words, our job is to hold the people within the family of God accountable, not those who are outside the church. God will deal with them. We're to help people within the church learn the way of Jesus. And that means we have to help them see uh, what's right and wrong and call them to account for that. And so Paul ends then by restating the specific call to action that was said in verse 2 and that frames this whole section. He says, remove the evil person from among you. Uh, Just like cleaning out the old leaven, this has been the point of that imagery. Um, His presence is polluting the whole church. Remove him from among you. And this is really a repeated refrain from the old covenant. You heard it there in the instructions about 
Passover and unleavened bread. Clean the house out of uh, unleavened bread. A person who eats unleavened bread during the festival, let him be cut off from the assembly of the Lord's people. That's That refrain shows up multiple times throughout the Torah as uh, how to deal with people who violate the community standards. And it has to do with maintaining the purity of God's people. Well, Paul applies that principle here because uh, living out our identity as holy is still important under the new covenant. And so to tolerate a person who is unrepentant and sleeping with his stepmom is polluting the entire church. And so the Corinthians are set apart as God's holy people. Um, They need to be pure and holy, which means if this person will not repent, then he needs to be removed from among them. And Christians today, well, we're God's holy people as well. And thus, we must live who we are. We must be holy as God is holy because we are his holy people. And so we need to take uh, this example here from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and really reflect on it and begin to think, what would that look like in our context? I will be honest. I find uh, the instructions here really important and really difficult to live out in our context because of the way we do church today. If you disassociate from somebody in one congregation, they may just move over to another congregation. And the social pressure to uh, change their behavior and to repent really loses any of its power. And so we need to prayerfully and thoughtfully meditate on this text and think through what it would look like, what kind of social pressure is there that is natural in our church and cultural context that we could use to help people lovingly and graciously see the truth and repent so that they might be saved as well.